you've got your Bibles this morning, I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of John and to chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to begin a new sermon series today, and I thought that the way that I would introduce it to you is by letting you know that somehow, some way, my wife and kids convinced me to take them to Disney World later this year. And I'm going to tell you that was not an easy task for them to do. With my dislike of crowds and my claustrophobia and my bouts with vertigo that make the riding of roller coasters virtually just miserable for me and everyone around me, you can imagine just how excited I am to take this trip. (laughs) Nevertheless, we're going. And I have promised them that I will have a good time. I have promised them that at least I would not make them not have a good time. That may be the bigger challenge. It's been 10 years since the last time that I went to Disney. I have not missed it. Um, I do have some recollection of my last trip there, though. And you might find this strange in light of all that there is to both see and do while you're there. Um, The one thing that I recall most distinctly is driving into the park, the big sign that they have stretched all across those lanes as you make your way in. And and, um, I I recognize that that Disney spends significant resources on signage within and outside the park in order to to affect the experience of the park goers that they have that come. And I remember that big sign that stretched across the road, and it said Disney World, or Walt Disney World, where dreams come true. That's a, big, that's a big claim. I understand they've actually changed that sign in recent years to where it says now Disney World, the most magical place on earth. And I thought, that's a bold claim either way, regardless of which one you make. Um, Then once you enter the park, my family had, the last time we went, we had our picture made next to that sign that's right there in the Magic Kingdom when you go in that that says, let the memories begin. I thought, somebody's got their hand out saying, let the money uh, start flowing. Um, Still, there's another sign in the park that says, here you leave today and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. Now, What I know is is that Disney uses these signs, specially placed signs throughout their park in order to set the tone for what they want their their park goers to experience. They want to establish a mood. They want to create an atmosphere that allows their guests to believe in something that is outside the realm of the mundane and the normal. Well, As we turn to the Gospel of John this morning and to this new series of sermons that I want to lead us in over the next few weeks, we come to realize that John the Evangelist does something very similar. As John writes his Gospel, he also uses specially placed signs along the way. Now, these signs are not placards that stretch across a roadway They're not signs that hang on a wall someplace. Rather, these are signs that identify a miracle or or some other action that Jesus engaged in. And these signs are there to point us to something more significant, far greater than just the sign itself. This is where, in my opinion, John differs greatly from the park management of Disney. 
Because you see, I remember another sign inside the park at Disney that read, Believe in Magic. But John, on the other hand, uses his signs to say, Believe in Jesus. In other words, he doesn't ask us to suspend our grip on reality and enter into fantasy of make-believe. Rather, John wants us to believe in what is true and what is the one true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John reveals the purpose for everything that he wrote in his entire gospel. Right at the very end of the gospel, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But then he says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So just to conclude this little brief introduction to the series this morning, this is what I believe to be true, and here's something that I know to be true. What I believe is true is that at Disney, they want to create an environment where folks can escape the realities of the real world by enjoying a park that caters to their imaginations. It's a place that that make-believe and fantasy create a fun getaway and and, and from all the real-life troubles that, that families are going through and the struggles that they face. And I believe that's true, and I believe that as it goes, Disney probably does as well a job of that as anyone. But what I know to be true is that John has an infinitely higher and more noble goal. John's goal is not to provide an escape from real life. Rather, John's goal is to point us to the only hope that any of us have in real, true, enduring, everlasting life that comes through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer is that as we work our way through these signs in the gospel of John, my prayer is that the person of Jesus will be revealed to you. And that those of you who have not yet been persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you will consider his claims and that you will weigh his ev- the evidence that's presented and that you will place your faith in him. For those of you who have done that, then my goal is that by studying these signs afresh and anew, you will once again behold the glory of Christ and that you will be struck by the awe and the wonder and that you will enter into worship and you will desire to follow Jesus more fully and more completely. Now, with that as a not-so-brief introduction, let's, let's, let's just jump right in. There to John chapter 2, where we find this first sign that's revealed to us. And in John chapter 2, verse 1, we read these words. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 
Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time. Now I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word in Christ's name. I think I should point out uh, that even for folks who have just a scant um, knowledge of Jesus and all that he did um, and the miracles that he performed, know about this miracle. The miracle of turning water into wine is one of those things that everybody seems to just know. They've been told that story through the years. I also would say this, because most modern-day weddings refer to this wedding at Cana Many people who don't have any other affiliation with the church or anything else know about Jesus and the turning of the water and the wine at this wedding in Cana. There's a lot, though, still, even though our familiarity is with the story, there's a lot that we don't know about. Uh, Number one, we don't know who it was that got married. Um, we, We don't know who those were. We don't know what their relationship was to Jesus and to his mother. We also do not know why they ran out of wine. You might be surprised at the amount that is written in an attempt to try to answer these questions, which John specifically has not given us an answer to. So I'm not going to chase those things out this morning. John didn't choose to answer them because obviously they're not important to the story. If they're important to you, you can go and read all of those things for yourself. What John does tell us, though, in this story is enough that it demonstrates the glory of Christ and it calls us to faith in him. In fact, the last verse that I read for you there in verse 11 tells us that this miraculous sign performed by Jesus manifested his glory, and then that resulted in his disciples believing in him. Now, as we've looked at this, I've just broken this passage down into some simple hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through it. And the first one that I've given you is this. We see the setting of this sign was an occasion for enjoyment. It was an occasion for enjoyment. Now, as you know, weddings are big deals, and they require a lot of planning. They're often very expensive. Uh, It was no different in Jesus' day. In fact, in first century Palestine, weddings were important social events that in many ways were even greater, had a greater social significance than even the weddings that we have today are. Uh, See, unlike today, uh, when, when a wedding just lasts really for one day, in, in first century Palestine, weddings lasted for up to a week. And, and it was a community-wide event in which, you know, over the course of a week, food and drink and often lodging were, were provided for the wedding guests, and they would eat and they would drink and they would dance the days away. It was an occasion for celebration. And what's worth noting is that Jesus was at this wedding in Cana. He attended this celebration. He participated in the party. He was there having a good time with all the other guests. 
Now, for some, that may be an image of Jesus that doesn't exactly square with how you normally think of him. You may envision him as this dour-faced stoic who concentrates his interest on the thou shalt nots of Scripture. But I want you to know that the Gospels portray him as a man who went to dinner parties and to weddings like this one, and all kinds of people enjoyed his company. He was, a, he was a man who was enjoyed by the people who were around him. Folks really looked forward to sitting down to a meal with him and having a conversation with him. They enjoyed dancing with him at a wedding. And Jesus is at this wedding in Cana. And I think in some respects teaches us a little bit about how we ought to enjoy the life that God gives us as well. So he's at this wedding in Cana, and in that culture as it is in ours, weddings were an occasion for enjoyment. Now, one difference back then, though, was that the groom's family was responsible for the cost of the wedding and for providing hospitality that was expected in hosting an event like this. As the father of three daughters, I like that idea. In fact, I'm thinking of starting a movement. Anyways, back in those times, it was the groom's family's responsibility to not only take the expense of the wedding, but to make the wedding fun. It was their responsibility to provide the hospitality that could bring about great joy to people's lives. This was an occasion for enjoyment. But there's also this idea we have to do this because this was a a culture of, of shame. And to not provide hospitality and for them, for, for, for wedding goers to not have a good time was a cause for embarrassment, cause for, for shame among the people. And, and even if it, if it went really bad, the, the bride's family could even sue the groom's family over such a bad wedding event. Not exactly the way you want to start things off. So obviously that fear lurks behind the scenes of this wedding And according to verse 3, there was great reason for it because John tells us that they ran out of wine. Suddenly, what we realize is that this occasion for enjoyment quickly became, notice the second point there, became the potential for embarrassment. The potential for embarrassment. As I mentioned earlier, we don't know if the groom's family didn't plan appropriately or have enough wine on hand or if more people showed up than was expected or if the people that were there drank more than they should have. None of that is told to us. The Scriptures don't say All we know is that they've run out of wine and and a potentially scandalous moment has arrived. And clearly running out of wine at a wedding was a serious matter. I don't think we need to spend much time on that point. Particularly in that culture, the presence of wine symbolized joy and and symbolized gladness. And therefore, I I think we can all understand the anxiety and the frenzy that would have been created by running out of wine at this wedding. In fact, Jesus' own mother is caught up and drawn into the desperation of this moment. Many believe that she was, she was a relative in some way to the groom's family, which is why she was there and why Jesus would have received an invitation to the wedding. We don't know that for sure. What we do know, though, is that Jesus' mother is very interested in helping find a solution to the lack of wine. Regardless, notice that, that she seeks this remedy to this problem, though, by going to Jesus and making, notice the the third hook that I've given you there on your outline, an implied expectation. 
she, she makes a statement that is really an implied expectation. Jesus' mother sought him out and said to him, they have no wine. You find that interesting? I do. She doesn't, she doesn't say, Jesus, I want you to do something. She just makes a statement. I'm quite familiar with those kind of statements. The dishwasher's through running. Okay. The trash is full. Okay. You know that light bulb's burned out. Statements sometimes are made filled with expectation involved. There is something that one is expected to do as a result of the statement that is made. I think that's exactly what we find here. Jesus recognized that his mother's statement carried that same level of expectation, but notice that he responds to her by saying, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that's puzzling, isn't it? That's, that's not my mother always sits right along in here in the second service, and I can only imagine that here in a little over an hour when I'm standing up here and she's down there, if I were to say to her something along the lines of what Jesus said here, I could just see her with her look that would come back to me. This is not what we would expect. But here's what we also know. Jesus in no way ever sinned in anything. He never sinned in his thoughts. He never sinned in his actions. He never sinned in his words. He lived a perfect life. And so even when we realize that, we recognize that even here, nothing that Jesus said was untoward or sinful at all, even if we don't understand it completely. Scholars point out, though, that how Jesus addressed his mother was probably not as disrespectful as we might imagine, especially for first century Palestine. The word translated woman could also be understood in our modern vernacular as something along the lines of of madam. And so it wasn't disrespectful per se, but it was not what you would expect a son to say to his mother. I've never called my mother madam. I think it would be awkward if I did. I think this event was awkward. I think it was. Also puzzling is the phrase, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, In the Greek, this is a very difficult phrase to try to carry over from the idiomatic language of the the Jews into our modern vernacular in English. It's hard for us to get a full grasp of what is being said there. The best way that I could communicate it to you would be this, is Jesus is saying, listen, what do you and I have in common with regard to them running out of wine? That's the best clunky way I can make it make sense. To be honest, it's puzzling John Piper, though, notes that that this phrase that we're having such a difficult time understanding is uttered five other times in Scripture. And every other time that it's uttered, it's uttered by a demon speaking to Jesus. Every time, and we see this, this phrase, it's Jesus who has come into the realm of the demonic domain of a demon, and the demon says to Jesus, what do you, what do, what have you to do with us? The gist of the phrase simply just means this. I don't like you pressing in on me here. You shouldn't be coming at me like this. This is not your affair. You need to stay in your realm and let me stay in my realm. So clearly, 
when Jesus makes this same phrase here, he's, he's being abrupt with his mother. He's using the word woman, and he's, he's basically telling her, this is not your place to be calling out my power. She obviously expected Jesus to do something, but he did not approve of what she expected. It was as if Jesus was saying, it's not your place to tell me what to do in my earthly ministry. The key to understanding that I think comes from the last phrase that Jesus makes there, my hour has not yet come. Throughout the reading of John's gospel, Jesus refers to his coming hour. And whenever he does, it's always a, a, a pointing toward the time of his sacrificial death and his resurrection. He's pointing toward the time when his heavenly father would manifest his glory through his son. So when Jesus tells his mother that his hour had not yet come, he was telling her that it was not yet time for him to fulfill the purpose for which he had been sent. He was telling her also that because she was his earthly mother, she was a descendant of Adam's fallen race, and therefore she had no inside track with him to force him to do something that was outside his heavenly father's purview. So as one commentator put it, in his words, he says, Jesus was gently rebuking his mother to not rush him to manifest his glory before the proper time. What intrigues me is that while Jesus gently rebukes his mother for coming to him with this problem of no wine, she walks away. Did you notice? She walks away and and looks at the servants who were standing by and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, let me just say on the front end, there's never been a better piece of advice ever given to anybody than to say, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. If you don't leave with anything else today, just remember, the pastor said to you, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. That is tremendous advice. But underlying that statement is something else. Because I believe it shows tremendous faith on behalf of Jesus' mother. She evidently shakes off that gentle rebuke. And then she persevered in her belief that Jesus would do something. You you get that? D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Mary is rebuked for presuming on the family tie, yet she displays faith that is perfectly content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. She still does not know what he would do, but she has committed the matter to him, and she trusts him. As an aside, I just wonder, do you have faith like that? Do you have faith that once you have taken your concern to the Lord, you can walk away afterward knowing, not knowing exactly what he's going to do, but absolutely confident that whatever he does do will be right? Are you able to take your faith to that level that you can trust God, that he will do whatever is right in any situation, and you walk away from it content to leave it in his hands? I want you to know that's that's really the essence of faith. It's that belief that the Lord is able to do always what is right. Well, here in this passage, we recognize that Jesus does do what is right. 
But it wasn't because he was simply honoring his mother's request, and it wasn't because he wanted to save the groom and, and his family from shame. No, as I've mentioned already, Jesus did what he did here in order to provide a sign so that his glory might be displayed so that his disciples' faith would blossom. So there was an occasion for enjoyment. There was a potential for embarrassment. There's an implied expectation. And the final hook that the rest of the comments will come from this morning is the last one. Jesus provided this wedding party and us with a significant emblem, a significant emblem. This is an emblem. An emblem is something that points to something greater. That's really what, this, what a sign is. And it's what Jesus provides here through his miracle of turning water into wine. At this wedding, Jesus performed a sign that spoke profound spiritual truths about his identity and about his mission and about his purpose. And I've always been fascinated by this miracle. And one reason is because it's the first one that John records. It's the first official one on record that we have. And in that way, I believe it sets the stage for all the others that we'll come to as we study in John's gospel. But it's also the first one that points back to what I believe is the first miracles that we see in in the scriptures. And And it points to the creative power that Christ possessed. Notice that in verses 7 and 8, Jesus speaks to the servants and tells them to fill these these water pots full of water. And then he tells them to dip into those pots and to take from that, that that they dip out to the master of the feast in order for him to taste. And we're not told when the water that they filled into those pots actually became wine. All we know is that when the master of the feast tasted it, he immediately knew it was the best stuff he had ever put in his mouth. And so we don't know when the miracle occurred, but to me, it makes most sense to say that when Jesus told them to dip in, at that moment, the water had become wine. Now, now I want you to know such, such an instantaneous miracle by the very word of Christ points back to something that John's already told us back in the first chapter, in John chapter 1, verse 3, where he talks about Jesus being the word, the agent of creation. And what he says there is that all things were made through him, that is the word, that is Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. In other words, John just affirms that Jesus, who is the eternal word of God, was the agent of creation. And right here at the wedding at Cana, we see him displaying that same creative power in the creation of wine from water. Now, not everyone at that wedding knew how Jesus had done that or that even Jesus had done it. In fact, we, we get the impression that there were folks there who were merrily going along drinking wine and all of a sudden they just get their glass filled back up again and it's with this new wine, but they didn't realize where it had come from and what Jesus had done to make it. In fact, it's only the disciples and the servants who were with him that knew that the wine had previously just been water. The master of the feast didn't know it. All he knew was it was the best he'd ever had. The point is that strictly from a human vantage point, it would have appeared as though this wine had come through the normal processes of stamping out grapes, collecting the juice, and allowing that fermentation process to occur. That's what everybody at that wedding would have assumed. But they were wrong because a miracle had occurred. God in the flesh had stepped into the human scene and performed a sign that demonstrated his glory. What a significant emblem that is. And I believe it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus, the preexistent word, 
spoke and the cosmos came into existence. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, all formed by the very words of his mouth when he spoke. And I will go on record and simply state my view this way. From a strictly human perspective, all creation seems to have taken hundreds of millions, if not billions of years to come into existence. But that is only if you discount the creative power of Jesus, the very word of God who can speak and things come into immediate existence that had not been. Another reason that I believe this sign is to be a significant emblem is because it represents not only his creative power, but his transforming power. One of my favorite verses is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And what that verse tells us is that when Jesus reaches into our lives and brings us to himself, we will experience a radical change in our lives. We become something entirely new. And when Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding in Cana, he demonstrated that he had the power and the ability to bring about such radical change. He performed this first sign to demonstrate that the old things were passing away and all things were becoming new in him. In fact, Jesus was declaring an end to the old covenant Judaism and the beginning to his new messianic kingdom. He made this point by the water that he used in this miracle. He told these servants to fill up these six stone water pots that were there to be used for the purifying of the Jews. John makes that point to let us know. In other words, this water was not drinking water. This water was bathing water. This was the water that everyone would use when they would come to a wedding like this and they had to purify themselves by going through the ritualistic washing that that the law had set out and proposed for them. It was the water, that water that Jesus used to create this wine in order to show that the old covenant system was ineffectual and that it had passed away and that it was being replaced by this messianic kingdom that he had come to inaugurate. And something else is well worth noting is that the wine that Jesus created was both plentiful and it was superb. Did you notice that six water pots holding 20 to 30 gallons apiece would be the upwards of 180 gallons of wine? That's a lot of wine. It was plentiful, but the wine was also superb in its quality. And we know that because when the master of the feast tasted it, he said, you know, dude, Most people serve the good stuff first, and then when everybody's had enough and they can't really taste the difference and know the difference between what's coming next, they serve the bad stuff at the end. You've reversed it and served the best stuff at the last. In other words, this was superb wine. And this is what's being revealed here. This is such a significant emblem because with this sign, Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah come to establish a new order. And the old covenant Judaism, which had run out of wine, with the ministry of Jesus is brimming over with new wine. And it's abundant. And it's superb. And that's why I believe Paul could say that the old is gone and the new has come. Let me point out one last way that I believe that this sign is such a significant emblem. 
You see, wine was an important element of the Israelite Passover feast. But at the Last Supper, you remember that, that Jesus goes into here in John's Gospel? He tells us that at that feast, Jesus infused the wine of the Passover feast with a new meaning, a new significance. He made it a symbol of his own life-giving blood. So I don't believe it's too far afield to interpret this miracle as Jesus saying, look, this is what my hour will be like. I will take the purification rituals of Israel and replace them with a decisively new way of purification, a purification that comes in my blood. So in this passage, we have witnessed an occasion for enjoyment followed by a potential for embarrassment that then led to an implied expectation which ultimately resulted in a display of a significant emblem. And the significance of that emblem, as D.A. Carson writes, tells us that Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power and still less are they neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, God doesn't do parlor tricks. He doesn't perform miracles simply to show off. Rather, when Jesus performs a miracle, he is doing it to display his power, and it is designed to point beyond itself to a deeper reality that is perceived with the eyes of faith. In other words, the Lord has a specific purpose in mind when he gives us these signs. And listen, he also expects a specific response it. The response he expects is faith. When Christ's glory is displayed, the expected response is for you and for me to believe in Jesus. That's what his disciples did. The question is, will you? You see, like the disciples, you too are a witness to this, to this very first miracle. By being a reader of the gospel that John has recorded, we are in a sense a guest at this ancient wedding. And God expects you to see the glory of Jesus in this sign. And he expects you to respond to it by believing in his son. The question is, will you do that? Will you embrace the person of Jesus, the one who creates and the one who transforms and brings new life to that which was old and empty? Listen, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then this sign calls you to embrace the only hope that you have for real enduring permanent change in your life. I want you to know that money and and sex and power and self-help books, none of those things can permanently change your life. They do not have the power to do so. You are spiritually dead outside of Christ and you do not have the power to change yourself into something new any more than this water had the power to change itself into wine. You need Christ to change you. And in changing the water into wine, Jesus demonstrated that he has all the ability and the power to do that. He can make all things new, even you. So will you trust him to be your Lord and Savior? If you are a believer, then let me reiterate that what this sign calls for you to do is to see the glory of your Savior, the one who made you a new creation. You were once like those powerless water pots yourself. 
that Jesus made you a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And that should bring great joy to your heart and cause you to worship him and cause you to follow him all the more. All of that then brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. We should believe in Jesus. We should follow him and rejoice in his glory because he makes all things new. And so as we close today, I think it's just fitting to be reminded of the fact that this wedding actually was a wedding like all weddings. It was a wedding that actually was a sign in and of itself that would point to a greater wedding that would come, a greater wedding that Scripture tells us about, a greater wedding that the book of Revelation reminds us of will one day take place, and, and Jesus will not be a guest at this wedding. Jesus is the groom at this wedding, and the bride comes to him, and in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Glory be to God, those whose faith is in him will one day be at this wedding. And I want you to know the joy and the excitement and all that is there of all good weddings will be ours to enjoy forever. Are you on that list? Are you coming? If you're not, I invite you this morning, come to Christ. He is there and he will save you. And you too can enjoy that wedding with him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this miraculous sign that points us to so many things that we see of your character and of your personhood in the the scriptures. Thank you for the salvation that you offer to us. And thank you for the hope that you give to us and that we can have by knowing that you are the one who can do all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.